This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 11. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's Slap Law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 11th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique law firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. We've been doing this for more than 20 years. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap, please feel free to call me at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. If you ever find yourself on the wrong end of an anti-slap motion and are facing attorney's fees, be sure to give me a call as well. Thus far, knock on wood, I've always been able to get a reduction in the fees, often a very significant reduction. And speaking of motions for attorney fees, I recently received a very concerning call where the person said that he had filed what turned out to be a slap action, and after filing an anti-slap motion, the attorney on the other side, as he put it, was trying to extort money out of him. Uh, But the attorney told him in exchange for payment of money, the attorney was offering to withdraw the anti-slap motion if the plaintiff agreed to dismiss the action. He said this was going to destroy his life, as he put it. So I put him on the clock, and I reviewed all the documents, and... It turned out that it was a very clear slap, and while I had anticipated that the request for attorney fees was going to be huge, based on his statement that the the request was going to destroy his life comment. So it turned out that he had the good fortune of running into a very ethical attorney who was only asking for a couple of thousand dollars in attorney's fees. Uh, When I told him the amount that some attorneys seek uh, after they bring these motions, he was happy to pay the small amount requested. And attorney fees are going to be our topic for today. We're going to discuss attorney fee motions following a successful anti-slap motion. I'd like to start today with a war story about a motion for attorney fees I had this week, and then I'm going to give you six tips for successful attorney fee motions. I've reported here before that sometimes my reputation as an attorney who specializes in this area precedes me, and that can be a problem when I bring applications for attorney fees. Since I have a great deal of experience with anti-slap motions, the judge feels that I should be able to bring a motion in far less time than other attorneys. I sometimes have to fight an uphill battle to get the judge to understand that the savings are already built into my fee application specifically because I have so much experience. And that scenario arose again just this past week. The judge in Los Angeles issued a tentative the morning of the hearing, and she indicated that she was going to cut my fees by about one-third and incredibly award no cost whatsoever. Now, admittedly, this was not a particularly challenging anti-slap motion from a strictly legal standpoint, but it was factually intense, and it was complicated by the fact that I had to proceed by way of an ex-party application to shorten time for the hearing to get it heard within 30 days. Normally, I can just get the other side to stipulate to a later hearing when the court can't schedule the hearing within 30 days. Uh, Most attorneys will go along with that because it just gives them more time to prepare an opposition. But once in a while, you run into an attorney that feels like they have to fight everything. And so when I ask them to stipulate for the hearing to be heard after the 30 days, it's not because I want it heard after the 30 days. It's just because the court can't accommodate our, our schedule. Normally, when I ask for that, the other attorney will go along with it. But once in a while, you run into these attorneys that won't. And that was the case here. And so 
to protect myself, even if I'm pretty confident that the court's not going to grant the motion to shorten shorten the uh, or move up the hearing date, I still bring the motion so they can't later argue that I, I didn't comply with the 30-day requirement. So that's what I did here. I went in and I, I, I moved ex parte to get the hearing heard on an earlier date. The court uh, denied it and, and left the date set uh, when it was. So, but then I'm protected. In this case, I billed a total of 18 hours, and that included the anti-slap motion, uh, all of the ex parte application and process and hearing and all of that, and the motion for attorney's fees. So that was pretty frugal, 18 hours for all those activities. And the judge was set to award just 10 hours for the anti-slap motion and just two hours for the attorney's fee motion. And here are the three things that absolutely amazed me in the tentative ruling. In her tentative ruling, the judge stated that the motion could not have been particularly challenging because the points and authorities were only 10 pages long. She also said that an attorney with my level of experience should not need more than 10 hours to bring and reply to an anti-slap motion, and she was not going to award any of the costs in the action because she either did not view them as directly related to the anti-slap motion or they were not permitted under the Code of Civil Procedure. For example, I'd asked for the court call fees for the ex parte hearing, and she said those were not a permitted expense. Let me tell you how we responded to those points, and then I'll get to the tips. As to the points and authorities being only 10 pages long, our response was that being succinct takes time. Now think about it. I could throw out a stream of consciousness brief that fills 25 pages, but going back and editing to make the argument as brief and cogent as possible, well, that takes time. There's an actress from the 1920s or 30s, I believe. Her name was Louise Brooks, and she said, Writing is 1% inspiration and 99% elimination. And Frederick Nietzsche said, It is my ambition to say in ten sentences what others say in a whole book. Attorneys are not paid by the page, and the court should not penalize attorneys who show the court courtesy, show the court the courtesy of presenting short briefs. Now, as to my level of experience, as I've explained, it is precisely because of that experience that I can prepare these briefs so quickly. Think about what the judge was saying. She was basically saying a high attorney fee award is appropriate only where the attorney is ignorant and verbose. I mean, think about it. An experienced and succinct attorney should not receive all his fees. That's that's basically what she's saying. Really? If my declaration had said that I had never done one of these motions before, and that's why it took so long, would that have justified the full fee request? It just doesn't really make conceptual sense. The judge was really not looking at the big picture. Does, does she really want to encourage attorneys to add unnecessary fluff to their briefs just to justify the full award of attorney fees? And finally, there, there were the costs. Now, I've come up with this issue a couple of times in the past, and I think it's from a failure of the court to see the forest for the trees. If an anti-slap motion is your first response to a complaint, are you entitled to recover the first appearance fee? I say yes, because the defendant would not have had to pay that fee except for the fact that he had to appear in the action to file the anti-slap motion. But some judges say the fee is not directly related to the motion and therefore is not recoverable. And I say it's kind of a distinction without a difference, and and it's being hyper-technical, because in cases where the anti-slap motion completely disposes of the action, that fee was entirely for the right to file the anti-slap motion. As the prevailing defendant, I'm entitled to recover my costs anyway. So, is it really in the best interest of judicial economy to make me submit a separate cost bill on that item so the judgment can then be amended? No, just go ahead and give it to me in conjunction with the motion for attorney fees. And what about that court call fee? Here's what the judge was thinking. It's not entirely outside the realms of reason. The allowable cost items are set forth in CCP section 1033.5, and the cost for a court call is not one of the recoverable expenses listed in section 1033.5. However, and this is a point lost on many judges, that section, 1033.5, 
includes a subsection that permits pretty much any expense. It states, quote, Items not mentioned in this section and items assessed upon application may be allowed or denied in the court's discretion. So, Your Honor, I could have appeared at the ex parte hearing to advance the hearing date, and the plaintiff would have been on the hook for about $1,600 for me to drive to Los Angeles. Or, I could pay $85 and appear by court call, which is the better way to go. Again, your tentative ruling, Your Honor, is seeking to reward negative behavior. Now, even outside the context of an anti-slap motion, keep that in mind whenever you submit a memorandum of costs. If it's reasonably related to whatever it is you were accomplishing, the court can, in its discretion, award those costs. Now, don't go crazy on these. I've seen some firms, they submit their dining bills when they're out of, when they're out of state or out of town on a hearing or a trial. Uh, they submit all of their food costs as an item, and I, I think that's over the top. Back to our case, though. In the end, the court did agree with all our points and brought the attorney fees and costs back up to where they needed to be. So here are my six tips for attorney fee applications. These are specific to attorney fee applications on anti-slap motions, but also apply generally to other fee applications. Tip number one, be very detailed in setting forth the time spent on the anti-slap motion. I'm frequently retained as an expert to opine on fee applications, so I've seen a ton of these motions. One thing I see over and over is that the more an attorney is trying to pad the bill, the less he or she will provide details. The reason is that if you break things out, the padding becomes very obvious. A declaration that just says, I spent 80 hours bringing and arguing an anti-slap motion leaves nothing specific to challenge beyond saying that's just too much time. Whereas if the fee application instead says 35 hours researching the motion, 35 hours writing the motion, and 10 hours to prepare for and argue the motion, well, that much detail provides specific items that you can attack. So you may say, well, it sounds like it's a better idea to be very general. Well, sadly, I have to admit that with some courts, that will work. But with most courts, they're going to require more detail. I've never persuaded a court to award nothing on an anti-slap motion, but on other attorney fee applications, I have persuaded the court to award nothing where there is insufficient support for the fee application. So I think you're better suited to go ahead and provide the detail. Now, for my part, I'm extremely detailed with the fee application. I attach the actual invoices if appropriate, and of course, I redact them as necessary to preserve any communications. If I decide not to attach the invoices, I list each of the individual time items in my declaration. And the reason I give such detail is because of tip number two. Tip number two, invite the opposition and the court to challenge any specific time. If you worked efficiently, your fee application will so indicate, and it should be bulletproof. Courts love to come up with ballpark figures, such as in the case I just discussed, where the judge said 10 hours was enough for an anti-slap motion. She wasn't challenging any specific item. She was just wetting her finger and holding it up to the wind and saying, I think 10 hours is enough for an anti-slap motion. No, the way I turn that around is to point to the actual hours spent on undeniable tasks. For example, I'll say, well, Your Honor, it takes three hours for me to attend a hearing from Orange County. So in this case, I spent three hours to appear to argue the anti-slap motion, and now I'm spending three hours to argue the motion for attorney fees. Also, as you can see from the fee application, there were several correspondence between myself and opposing counsel where I tried to resolve this motion without having to incur any additional attorney fees, and that took an hour. So that means the court is allowing me just three hours to review the complaint, research the grounds for an anti-slap motion, draft the anti-slap motion, review and reply to the opposition, prepare my motion for attorney fees, and read and reply to the opposition to the motion for attorney fees. I'm fast, Your Honor, but I'm not that fast. Can Your Honor point to any specific time that was unwarranted? That 
forces them to, rather than just ballpark it, to say, well, when you researched 4.5 hours on Tuesday, I think that was too much time. They don't want to get into that level of detail, and that's understandable, but you have to get them away from just trying to ballpark it, and you can do that with very detailed fee applications. Tip number three, show the court that you did everything you could do to reduce the fees. Quite understandably, judges are getting wary of attorney fee applications following anti-slap motions because so many unethical attorneys are greatly inflating their bills. Have you ever noticed, if you've ever been been in the bankruptcy arena, you'll see that bankruptcy attorneys have some of the highest hourly rates. Well, is that because bankruptcy is a particularly challenging practice area? No, it's because bankruptcy judges routinely discount fee applications. If an attorney's normal hourly fee is $350, they make it $700 for bankruptcy court in anticipation of the court cutting the application by 50%. Judges cut the time so the attorneys raise the rate. We're seeing the same thing with anti-slap motions. Attorneys submit inflated fee applications so the judges cut the time, and when an honest application is submitted, the judge thinks it needs to be cut as well. So you need to demonstrate to the court that you tried to avoid running up the bill. For the reasons I've already discussed here, it can be malpractice to warn the other side that you are going to bring an anti-slap motion, but you can try to cut off the process following the filing of the motion. I write to opposing counsel and explain that the anti-slap motion is undeniable, but they can stop the meter running by just dismissing the action. I'm not letting them off the hook for the uh, anti-slap motion attorney fees, but at least they can stop it at that point. This goes a long way toward convincing the court that you're not the sort of attorney who tries to maximize the bill. You actually tried to cut it off. Tip number four, remind the court that an anti-slap motion is a big deal. Some judges have the attitude that all motions are fungible. They see a dozen motions to compel every week, and those are all cut-and-paste motions, and they only award $1,000 for those motions. So why should an anti-slap motion be entitled to so much more? Always remind the court that an anti-slap motion is not a demur or a motion to compel, but is more akin to a motion for summary judgment. With an anti-slap motion, you have to prove up the defense to show that the plaintiff cannot prevail. So the basic legal principles behind an anti-slap motion can be cut and pasted from prior motions, but the rest of the motion will be uniquely tailored to the facts of the case and require supporting declarations. Tip number five, explain to the court that the purpose of the anti-slap motion is subverted if the defendant is not fully compensated. The entire purpose of the slap statutes is to prevent litigation from being used to silence critics. So a client comes to me and says, Mr. Morris, I posted an honest review on Yelp and now I'm being sued. Should I fight it or just take it down? I need to be able to say to that client, the lawsuit is a slap and I will bring a motion to get it thrown out. We'll get your attorney fees back from the other side. But if instead I have to say to the client, well, the lawsuit is a slap and I'm going to bring a motion to get it thrown out and the other side should be required to pay most of your attorney's fees, but chances are the court will not award all of your attorney's fees. So you're going to be out out of pocket several thousand dollars on this. Well, that client may decide it's better just to give in to the threat. It's kind of like the old line judge, if you don't award all the attorney fees, the terrorists win. And closely related to tip number five is tip number six. Remind the court that anti-slap motions save money and resources. It is good and appropriate when judges consider these applications carefully, and they probably consider, even though they really shouldn't, the economic impact the award will have on the plaintiff. But even though the plaintiff may be on the hook for some serious coin, a successful anti-slap motion saves all involved big money by ending the action quickly and preserves the court resources. So it may sting a little bit to award all of the attorney's fees, but in the long run, you've saved all of the parties a lot of money. So those are the six tips. Apply them to your attorney fee applications, and you'll improve your chances of recovering all your fees. 
I want to wrap up this episode by bringing you up to date on a couple of cases we previously discussed. In episode 10, we discussed the case of Demetriads versus Yelp. That's the case where a restaurant owner was sick and tired of all the false reviews being posted by competitors. But instead of going after Yelp with a slap or suing the people who posted the false reviews, he brought an action against Yelp for false advertising. Yelp claims that its filters leave only trustworthy reviews, and Demetriads wants to stop them from making that bogus claim. The really entertaining part is that Yelp argued that everyone knows its reviews are questionable, so no one really takes seriously the claims by Yelp that its reviews are trustworthy. Yelp brought an anti-slap motion, but the Court of Appeal held that the action by Demetriads could proceed. Yelp has now requested review by the California Supreme Court. If the review is granted, that should provide a really good discussion by the Supreme Court of Section 425.17. I'll keep you posted on what happens on that case in front of the Supreme Court. The other case I want to bring you up to speed on is a case at Morrison Stone that we discussed in Episode 9. The way counsel for plaintiff has handled this matter is an important lesson on the discovery restraints once an anti-slap motion is filed. As you will recall if you listened to Episode 9, a company has filed a bogus action against our client claiming misappropriation of trade secrets. The company doesn't want our client to compete, so they've been trying to beat him down with this action. And since we beat their strategy to get a restraining order, they were using discovery and repeated threats of motions to compel as their tool of harassment. Then, much to my amazement, they filed an amended complaint that was clearly a slap. So I filed an anti-slap motion, which of course stayed all discovery. In episode 9, I opined that they would not take that lying down and would bring some sort of motion to lift the discovery stay. But, being ever helpful, I went through the law regarding the discovery stay and showed that there was no legal basis for seeking relief from that stay under the circumstances of this case. But, apparently, opposing counsel doesn't listen or just doesn't care. It's been very entertaining how this has all played out. These attorneys really just have no shame. I'll give you this in detail so you can be aware of these tactics. When the firm in question serves a motion, we normally receive it three ways. We'll get a motion, we'll get the motion by fax, email, and by overnight mail. And don't ask me why they send the same motion three ways, but I think they think that it somehow adds to the intimidation factor. But if it's a motion they don't want us to know about right away, well, they always serve those only by snail mail. And unfortunately, this case is in Los Angeles, so checking the docket every day does not let us know what they're up to because it can take several days for something to show up on the docket in Los Angeles. So, early Monday morning, I get an email asking me to stipulate to lifting the discovery stay as to the causes of action not related to our anti-slap motion. And the letter says that if we don't agree to lift the stay, they will be moving ex parte the following day for a motion shortening the time on the motion to lift the stay. And that's it. The letter provides no explanation as to what discovery they want to conduct. It provides no explanation as to why that discovery can't wait. And it provides no indication if they had already filed the underlying motion on which they were seeking to shorten time. So I wrote back and I said, I can't stipulate to this because it's unspecified relief. In other words, at least tell me what discovery you want to take before asking me to stipulate to it. I also asked if they'd already filed the motion. And if so, I asked that they email it to me so I could take a look at it, since that would likely explain what discovery they want. Well, I got no response whatsoever. So I just had to assume that the ex parte motion would be moving forward. Let me do a quick sidebar here about ex parte motions, because this is really one of my pet peeves. The rules of court, which apply to all the courts, the rules of court require that you serve your ex parte papers, quote, at the earliest opportunity. Now, down here in Orange County, the local rules require that the ex parte papers be filed the day before the hearing, or sometimes if the court does ex partes in the afternoon, the papers have to be filed in the morning. So they're always filed either the day before or four or five hours before the hearing. 
Therefore, there should never be a circumstance where I don't see the papers until I walk into court. Since the opposition has to file the ex parte application long before the hearing, clearly the earliest opportunity under the rules of court, the earliest opportunity to serve me with those papers, can't be any later than the time they were filed. Now, it's a little different in Los Angeles. Los Angeles does not require that ex parte applications be filed in advance of the hearing. You can walk in and file them at the time of the hearing. Dating myself a little bit here, back in the day when you brought an ex parte application in Los Angeles, you actually showed up in court with no notice, went to the records department and pulled the file and physically carried the court file to the department with your motion. Can you imagine? Times have really changed. But anyway, even in Los Angeles, unless it is your claim that you did not finish the papers until you arrived in court, there should still never be an occasion that I don't receive the papers until the time of the hearing. The earliest opportunity to serve your papers, by definition, has to occur before the hearing. I should receive an emailed copy sometime before that hearing. But in typical fashion, opposing counsel never provided me with the papers. Indeed, in this case, I actually didn't see the papers until after the hearing. Here's the way it played out and why the victory was especially sweet. I had only the letter providing the ex parte notice. I didn't want to have to charge the client for driving to Los Angeles, and based on past experience with this particular judge, she never takes the bench on ex partes anyway, so it ends up being a very expensive messenger service just to drive the papers up there and and have yourselves excused, and the judge never takes the bench. So I arranged to uh, have my opposition filed. Now, this court hears ex partes at 8.30 in the morning, so I had to prepare my opposition to the motion the day before and get it on file with the department. My opposition had to be based on speculation on what the motion would say because all I had was the letter. But my opposition was only three pages long because the issues were so clear. I explained that I would not normally oppose a motion to shorten time, but in this case, it should be denied because it related to a pointless motion. I argued that the court should not give up one of its valuable law and motion slots for a motion that was doomed to failure. The court apparently agreed and denied the motion to shorten time. But it wasn't until the next day when I actually received the papers and saw the tacky things opposing counsel had done that I fully appreciated the victory. Remember when plaintiff's counsel had requested that I stipulate to lifting the discovery stay and how I'd asked opposing counsel to simply specify what discovery he wanted to take? Well, his act was done purely so he could represent to the court that he'd tried to work this out informally, but I'd refused. It turned out that opposing counsel had filed the motion to lift the discovery stay about five days earlier, but somehow I'd never received it. To this day, I still haven't received it. He attached it to his ex parte papers, but at the time he filed it, he never actually served me with it. Uh, Anyway, the court had set the hearing date on the motion for about three weeks after the anti-slap motion. Now, obviously, after the anti-slap motion, the discovery stay will be lifted automatically, so the hearing date set for the motion makes it moot. But here are the crazy arguments made by the opposition. They claim that the case involves 60... Count them, 60 claims, and that only four of them involved the anti-slap motion. I read that and I was like, there's not 60 claims. What are you talking about? But then I then I realized how he did the math. Here's how he came up with the 60 claims. They multiplied the number of causes of action by the number of parties in both the complaint and the cross-complaint. I guess they thought it sounded more convincing to argue that there were 60 claims rather than 15 causes of action. And the anti-slap motion only attacked four of them. But that's not even the crazy part. As we discussed in episode 9, the case law is very clear that if the court does grant permission to conduct discovery, it is limited only to the claims raised in the anti-slap motion and only to the defenses that would prevent plaintiff from showing a likelihood of success. But plaintiffs argued exactly the opposite. They argued that they didn't care about the causes of action relating to the anti-slap motion, but they wanted to be free to conduct discovery on the other causes of action. 
They then cited to a case that said it can be a violation of due process for a court to deny requested discovery, but the case actually held that it can be a violation of due process to prevent a plaintiff from, con- from conducting discovery to obtain evidence to defeat the anti-slap motion. Plaintiffs were putting the reasoning of the case on its ear. The court apparently agreed with us that the discovery plaintiffs were requesting was impermissible and denied the motion to shorten time on that basis. So the motion for relief from stay still remains on calendar, but our anti-slap motion won't be heard until February of 2015, and the motion for relief from the discovery stay won't be heard until March, so it's actually moot. So we've covered a lot today. You've got some great tips to improve the odds of getting all the attorney fees to which you and your client are entitled. You're up to speed on the Yelp case, and you've seen some of the arguments opposing counsel will try to make in order to get around the discovery stay during an anti-slap motion. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the California Slap Law Podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you happen to use. And until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Podcasts are distributed as a feed, much like blogs. In other words, I just upload the file to one location and it propagates out to the various services like iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spreaker. So after I upload an episode, I go to iTunes and Stitcher to make sure everything works. Shows on iTunes can have a star rating, but iTunes doesn't show any stars for a show until some unknown number of people have rated it. It has to reach a certain critical mass. It's not like Amazon where a product with one five-star rating appears as a five-star product. So when I check the feed on iTunes, I never see any stars, and I, I never really expected to because iTunes makes a listener jump through some hoops to post a review. By example, uh, I listen to a podcast that has been on since 2005, And it just passed the 1 million mark in terms of total downloads. And after 1 million downloads, that show has just 80 reviews. The point being that only a very small percentage of people leave reviews for podcasts. So anyway, I was on iTunes checking episode 10 and I happened to notice that I had a five-star rating. I was very excited. So I clicked on the review tab and found that five people have left reviews. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you. Yes, I'm talking to you for listening to my humble effort and to give special thanks to those of you who took the time to post some kind words. Have a great week.